Well, thank you uh, for your warm welcome, and I appreciate your your pastor, Pastor Ed. And I heard that Keith is has COVID, so I I wish him well. I hope he recovers soon. Um, tonight, I will have folks from our church that couldn't make it streaming the service live. That's why I have my laptop up here, and I hope you guys can hear me now. Is that right? Okay, good. But we cannot hear them. So uh, I thank you for your welcome. I'm glad to be here. Uh, as Ivan said, I'm pastor at the Bible Church at Port Washington, or if you want to call it the Port Washington Bible Church, that's fine with me. Um, but it is good to fellowship with you. I'm looking forward to tonight in the Word of God. And if you'd like, you can open your Bibles and turn to Zephaniah, the book of Zephaniah. Last but not least of the minor prophets, right? Now, Zephaniah is not exactly the first book that comes to most Christians' mind, nor is it the first book of the minor prophets that comes to mind. I sincerely doubt Zephaniah is probably anyone's favorite book of the Bible. I, don't, I, I doubt that. But whatever the case, I want you to see this little book of the Bible is kind of like a stick of TNT. It's small, but it packs a powerful punch. It's powerful. And I want us to see that tonight, but before we do, before we go to the Word of God, let's seek our Lord's help in prayer, shall we? Our Father, tonight we thank you for your holy word, which includes this little forgotten book that we're about to examine. And I ask that you would show us what instruction you have for us in this day out of this book You told us that whatever things you had written in former times were written for our instruction. And so we claim that, Lord, and we expect you to instruct us and we expect your Holy Spirit now to be our guide into truth. Would you illumine the significance of your word in only the way that you can? And would you not simply challenge us, but would you change us through what you have said through your prophet? This we ask in Jesus' precious name, amen. Amen. Well... Have you ever thought about how the world is going to end? People all over the world will get interested in Christianity, maybe even interested in the Bible, because they're very interested in exploring how the world's going to end. Actually, I was looking at an article from Life Science that tells us that scientists have apocalyptic theories of their own. Uh, Among many of their theories is yours truly, global warming. Many believe the world will end with... Uh, irresponsible humans destroying the planet, climate change, whatever you want to call it, the Earth will become an inhabitable planet. Others say, uh, other scientists, that an asteroid will strike the Earth and the impact will render life on Earth impossible. Some now say that a deadly pandemic will end life on Earth as we know it. Maybe engineered disease. And for some reason, those ones are kind of gaining traction. Get this, some have said that the end of humanity will be a deadly fungus. Deadly fungus. It may be the end of some of us, but I doubt that will be the end of the world. Of course, since 1945, much of the world fears the threat of nuclear war. That's a real threat. But is this going to be the end of the world? Some say it is singularity, the point at which AI overtakes human intelligence, and the Terminator will be a prophecy fulfilled. Well, here is 21st century man living in fear of giant space rocks and pandemics and fungus and alien invasions. I didn't even mention the zombie apocalypse. And yet, 
You can take courses on how to survive the world. I remember years ago, a junior hire of all, right, in one of my youth groups told me he was taking, no kidding, an elective on how to survive the zombie apocalypse. And I thought to myself, that's, you know, it was unbelievable. But if Zephaniah could hear the things that man is afraid about concerning the end of this world, he would be rolling over in his grave. Because there is a doomsday coming, but it's not the Terminator. It's not the zombie apocalypse. It is something far scarier. And that is what this book is about. So Zephaniah is going to tell us what this doomsday is and how to prepare for it. But before he does, I want to introduce you briefly to the prophet. Maybe you've um, never read this book. I don't know if that's the case. This is a great opportunity to become acquainted. We're just going to do a brief overview. But in verse 1 of chapter 1, we read, The word of the Lord came, which came to Zephaniah, son of Cushai, son of Gedaliah, son of Amariah, son of Hezekiah, in the days of Josiah, son of Ammon, king of Judah. Zephaniah, I don't know that I've ever met anybody named Zephaniah. Zephaniah's name means the Lord hides. The Lord hides. And that is hides in the sense of protects. This is being hidden in the sense of being protected. That's going to play into, really, ironically, the whole theme of this book. And he gives us, the prophet gives us, four uh, of his ancestors, which is interesting. That's very unique. And he goes all the way back to Hezekiah, most likely because this Hezekiah is the very Hezekiah you read about in the Bible, who is king of Judah. He was one of the godly kings. That would mean Zeph uh, Zephaniah is related to the godly line of David. How neat. And we know that he's preaching in the days of Josiah as a prophet. And I don't have time to give you all the details, but this would be during the Reformation that Josiah undertook. So this is a very interesting time in Judah's history. It is the last push before the fall of Jerusalem. You have some turning to the Lord, repenting. It's a time of some, uh, the remnant of God growing. But meanwhile, the wicked are more and more resolute, more incorrigible in their wickedness. So that's the context. That's what's happening here. And the occasion is, it's like Zeph Zephaniah is warning us that Judah is like a vehicle that is careened out of control. She is speeding down for destruction, and there's no way to stop her at this point. Destruction is imminent. And the, what we're going to see in this book is the destruction that he's referring to often is going to be the destruction of Jerusalem. That will be fulfilled in 586 when the Babylonians come in and just level the city. Jeremiah will write about that. But more ultimately, that destruction, even of Jerusalem, is just a preview of the ultimate day of the Lord. That is when God will bring a destruction upon all of the wicked over all the earth. And of course, that is, oops, sorry. That is nothing unique to Zephaniah's book. So here we are. We have Zephaniah writing to us, and the thrust of his message is that there is a doomsday coming, and the doomsday, the end of the world you must be prepared for, is the day of God's anger. It is the day of God's anger. And he gives us three imperatives to follow so that we can prepare ourselves for this day of God's anger. The first imperative to prepare yourself for the coming day is to seek the Lord. Seek the Lord. Sounds simple enough, right? Well, Everything is going to culminate with this command in chapter 2 and verse 3, but I want to show you how he gets there. He begins by giving us three images of God's anger. 
in chapter 1. He's going to show us. These images show us. Somebody is angry. He's very angry. It's going to, he's going to show us why, and he's going to show us why. You ought to be concerned about that. The first of these three images Zephaniah shares about God's anger is that of a catastrophic flood. He uses language reminiscent of Genesis 6. Verse, chapter 1, verse 2. I will completely remove all things from the face of the earth, declares the Lord. I will remove man and beast. I will remove the birds of the sky and the fish of the sea and the ruins along with the wicked. And I will cut off man from the face of the earth, declares the Lord. God means business. He's saying there will be a cataclysmic destruction upon this earth. This is not a flood. God said he wouldn't do that again. But this is what 2 Peter uh, chapter 3 talks about, how the very present heavens and earth are being reserved for fire, kept for the day of judgment. God is going to bring this destruction upon the earth, ultimately. And Zephaniah ends chapter 1 by saying that on the day of the Lord's wrath, all of the earth will be devoured in the fire of his jealousy. He will make a complete end, indeed a terrifying one, of all the inhabitants of the earth. There is something eschatological in view here, ultimate, final. And it's God's jealousy by which he will devour the wicked on this planet. Now notice, he in, in verse 4, he specifies the targets for God's destruction. Specifically, Judah, I will stretch out my hand against Judah and against the inhabitants of Jerusalem. Wow, this is God's own people. Why, Lord? Why your anger there? Well, three evils. First, idolatry. First, idolatry. Because he says in verse 4 that he's going to cut off the remnant of Baal and the names of the idolatrous priests and those who bow down to the housetops, uh, on the housetops to the host of heaven. That is the stars. People worshiping Baal, the Canaanite god of fertility, and all of the sexual promiscuity that went with that kind of a temple worship. And people here that are idolatrous priests, supposed to be leading people to the one true God, and they instead are bringing people to worship idols. God hates that. And you have people here who are bowing down to the host of heaven, worshiping the stars. Nature worship is coming back in, you know, becoming more popular today. And he says at the end of verse 5, and those who bow down and swear to the Lord, and yet swear by Milcom. Now, Milcom was an Ammonite deity. He's identified by many as the, the god Molech, to which many of God's very people, the Jews, would offer their own children as sacrifices. God hates this sin. It is heinous to him, and it's most heinous because this idolatry was, was being committed by people who said, we're actually worshiping the God of the Bible. It was syncretism. It was a mixture of the false with the true. And it, it wasn't just their idolatry, but he says, verse 6, and to those who have turned back from following the Lord, it is apostasy. It is those who have departed from knowing the revelation of God. And understand, all who reject Christ, all who do not come to Jesus Christ, will perish, are under the wrath of God, Jesus even himself said. But it is those who know the truth most clearly. They will receive the greatest condemnation. And that is these people here. They are apostates. They are turning from the truth, having fully known it and witnessed the works of God. And lastly, in the end of verse 6, it is those who have not sought the Lord or inquired of him. That is those who are complacent. Complacency. That's the worst of it. To add insult to injury, you're talking about people who weren't just 
departing from the truth of God to worship idols, but they were okay with it. They had no problem. For all the prophets God sent them, they were fine. And what God wants, the first thing he wants, is he wants them to be silent before the Lord, verse 7. He, he wants them to stop what they're doing and consider their ways. That is the beginning of repentance, to let the law of God convict them that the day of, Lord, of the Lord is near. Well, we see in this first image of God's judgment, a second image that Zephaniah uses in addition to this catastrophic judgment upon the earth is that of a sacrifice. He says in verse 7, Be silent before the Lord, for the day of the Lord is near, for the Lord has prepared a sacrifice. He has consecrated his guests. You understand, a sacrifice was to be slaughtered. A sacrifice was slain. It was killed. His blood was spilt. And God is saying, you know what the sacrifice that I'm talking about is? In this day of my anger, he says, verse 8, it will come about on the day of the Lord's sacrifice, I will punish the princes, the king's sons, those who clothe themselves with foreign garments. He's saying, you know what? You want to know who the sacrifice is that's going to be consumed on the altar of judgment? You know what it is? It's the leaders of this nation. He said, those who are dressing like the foreign, uh, like the foreigners. It's a way of just alluding to the fact that they were putting their hope in Egypt. They were putting their hope in their surrounding kingdoms, the nations around them, and not in the one true God who alone could deliver them. And he says, he will punish all of those who leap in that day, who leap on the temple threshold. This is alluding to a practice that was pagan, and yet the Jews were bringing this pagan practice, and they were incorporating that into their worship in the temple of the one true God. Syncretism again. You know, I know that we, we could consider a lot of churches. There are churches all around this nation that have the name of Christ, that claim to uphold the word of God and preach the word of God or teach it. But they are combining what the world says with what the word of God says. It's almost like they're treating Christianity or the Bible like it's a buffet table and they can pick and choose what they want out of the word of God as if that's left to them. And that may be popular, but God hates that. That is what occasions his anger. And he says, these people will be my sacrifice on the day of judgment. They fill the house of the Lord, uh, the house of their Lord, with violence and deceit. End of verse 9. The place to find God in his worship is a place of exploitation and hypocrisy. On that day, declares the Lord, verse 10, he says, this judgment will be coming to a neighborhood near you. That's the sense. He goes and he names neighborhoods that these people knew about. I mean, he talks about the fish gate and the second quarter, the hills. That may not mean anything to you, but it would be like a prophet getting up today and saying, this judgment is coming to Times Square. It is coming to Bayside. It is coming to uh, the Whitestone Bridge and all the way to the Hamptons. This is very specific. Zephaniah doesn't want them to have any disillusionment. God is going to bring his judgment here, of all places. He says, verse 12, it will come about at that time that I will search Jerusalem with lamps. I will punish men who are stagnant in spirit, who say in their hearts, the Lord will not do good or evil. There is just a characteristic theme of complacency. That's a problem. The first thing you can do, if you've never repented, if you're not prepared for the day of the Lord's anger, the first thing you could do is get concerned. The first thing you could do is take God at his word and say, the Lord means business. He will judge sin because he said so. Well, that was what these people weren't doing. And so God says, I'm going to make of you a sacrifice. 
Verse 14 in Omri, he gives us a third image of the coming anger of the Lord. And it is that of a battle. Not just any battle, but think of like a battle like on the type of Armageddon scale. This is a battle of battles. He says, verse 14, near is the great day of the Lord, near and coming very quickly. Listen, the day of the Lord, in it, the warrior cries out bitterly. A day of wrath is that day, a day of trouble and distress, a day of destruction and desolation, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness, a day of trumpet and battle cry. And he says, this is going to be a siege set against your city. Now, this was a people who had seen battle. All right. In their time, they knew what a battle string was like. There were many sieges that were laid to the city of Jerusalem in Jerusalem's history. That was a, quite a fought over piece of rock. And they, and yet what Zephaniah is saying, this is going to be a day. This is going to be a battle. This is going to be a siege unlike anything you've ever seen before. And he says, I will bring distress on men. Why? Why, why this battle, Zephaniah? So that they will walk like the blind because, verse 17, they have sinned against the Lord. Do you see it? You see it? It's not just God is angry. He's telling us why. He says, because they've sinned against the Lord. And this is a viewer discretion highly advised at the end of verse 17. And their blood will be poured out like dust and their flesh like dung. He said, it's going to be gory. This is going to be something like you've never seen before. And the Lord's anger will not be averted. He will not be bribed. There will be no escape. Verse 18, silver or gold won't be able to deliver you on the day of the Lord's wrath. All the earth will be uh, devoured in the fire of his jealousy because God means what he says and God loves his righteousness and his love for righteousness will consume the wicked in a moment. What a terrifying end. What a complete end of all the inhabitants of the earth. Well, those are the three images of God's anger. But Zephaniah gives us an invitation then. Chapter 2, verse 1. Gather yourselves together then. Yes, gather, O nation, without shame. Before the decree takes place, the day passes like the chaff. Before the burning anger of the Lord comes upon you. Before the day of the Lord's anger comes upon you. Before, before, before. He says, before it's too late. Now is the time. Today is the day of deliverance. Now you can have pardon. But when the rain falls, the door will be shut. There will be no hope of rescue. He says, seek the Lord, verse 3, all you humble of the earth. You realize in chapter 1 and verse 7, he said, hush. In the Hebrew, it's, it's literally an interjection. Be silent. Hush. Stop what you're doing. And in verse 11 of chapter 1, he said, wail, cry, lament, mourn. Get serious about your sin. It's time to show business that you mean business with God. And he says, gather together. Come and hear what God says. Come and hear the word of God collectively. And all of that has to do with seeking the Lord. That's how we are to seek him. But he further qualifies it. He says, all you humble of the earth who have carried out his ordinances, seek righteousness, seek humility. Perhaps you will be hidden on the day of the Lord's anger. How do we seek the Lord? Ultimately, in humility, seeking the righteousness of God. And amazingly, Zephaniah could not know how, how rich with meaning these words were when he wrote it. But later, years later, centuries later, we would see even with Paul writing about the righteousness of Christ, that the only hope we have 
of being spared God's judgment is by humility to seek the righteousness that is not our own, but is the righteousness of Jesus Christ. That's the only thing that will cover us and hide us in the day of God's anger. And the reason we seek that with humility is it's not our own righteousness. It is Christ's. Well, that is what we are to do. We are to seek the Lord. That's the first imperative of this book. And secondly, the second imperative that he brings us to is ultimately wait. Wait for the Lord. Now, we're not going to go very uh, detailed in this middle portion of Zephaniah's text at all. We're going to kind of fly over at about 10,000 feet here. But this section really culminates with chapter 3 and verse 8. Therefore, wait for me, declares the Lord. Okay, let's see what leads us to this command to wait on God. The end of chapter 2, the whole rest of chapter 2, verses 4 through 15, are really God's judgment on the nations. Sure, he's, he said some scorching things to Jerusalem, to Judah, but he says, Gaza, Ashkelon, Ashdod, Ekron, verse 4, they're all going to be judged too. It's the cities of Philistia. The sea peoples, as he goes on to say. Then he gets down to verse 8. He says, I'm going to judge Moab and Ammon too. They're not going to escape. I'm going to turn them into Sodom and Gomorrah. And i got to point this out. Verse 11, he says, The Lord will be terrifying to them, for he will starve all the gods of the earth. And the coastlands of the nations will bow down to him, everyone from his own place. That's like God with humor saying, Nobody's going to deliver you. Your gods are no rivals. There is no competition. Verse 12, the Ethiopians will also be destroyed. They will be laid desolate. And verse 13, listen to this. This is most surprising. And he will stretch out his hand against the north and destroy Assyria. Now, Assyria was the most powerful nation in the world at the time. Okay? They were on top of the world, as it were. They had conquered the most of the globe. But God says he will destroy Assyria, and he says he will make Nineveh a desolation, parched like the wilderness. He's going to take this great metropolis of the ancient world where the kings, the, the richest, the mightiest, the most powerful men on earth are sitting right now, and he's going to make it a desert. He goes on to say, I will make this the habitation of wild animals, and that's all it will be fit for. Well, God would fulfill this literally in 612, what I believe is just about a decade after Zephaniah is writing this. You would have an alliance of Babylonians and uh, Medes that would enter the city of Nineveh and lay it waste. And they would do such a good job that centuries later, by the second century AD, after Jesus Christ, Lucian of Samosata, the Greek writer, would say, he would lament of Nineveh. He would say, it's lost. The city is perished without a trace. And he would say that no one can say where it once existed. God did a good job. In fact, Nineveh would be so lost to history that skeptics would be bold as to say the Bible made that up. Nineveh never even existed until 1847. Austin Henry Laird, the British Assyriologist, came along and found it, buried under rocks. God said it, and he fulfilled it. Just as he said, the high and mighty won't escape God's wrath. What God promises, he always performs. Let the listener beware. Hear the word of the Lord. And now chapter 3 and verse 1, he continues. He says, woe to her who is rebellious and defiled, the tyrannical city. Now the context will make clear he's returning his focus on Jerusalem. This isn't Nineveh. This is Jerusalem. How ironic. The ironic thing is that after listing his judgment to come upon these nations of the earth, Zephaniah returns to this very city of God, Zion, 
And he says, judgment is going to fall on you. You're the tyrannical city. Why? Verse 2, she rejected rejected the word of the Lord. You refused to hear the prophets I sent you. You refused to hear my word. You didn't trust him. You didn't draw near to me. Verses 3 and 4, he talks about the princes, the judges, the prophets, the priests. Those who should have been leaders, leading people to the one true God. And they were most wicked in this. So God's going to judge them. You know, that should advise us, brothers and sisters. That should advise us, everyone here listening, here gathered together as an assembly, as a congregation of the Lord. God didn't just preach his judgment to the people outside the sanctuary. He preached hardest his coming judgment to people within the very congregation of him, of, of God. It was the people coming to worship God that he gives the sternest worship, I think, or warning. And I think what that how that applies to us today is God's judgment will fall upon churches. It will fall upon people who are baptized, people who partake of communion, people who have a confession of faith, but no genuine relationship with Christ. They've never sought the Lord God's way in humility. They're not covered in the righteousness of Christ. Well, these people weren't ready, even though they thought they were okay. The Lord is righteous. Ultimately, he says in in verse 7, it's very sad. He says, Surely, I said, you will revere me, you will fear me, but they wouldn't. The verse ends, but they were eager to corrupt all their deeds. That was God's people at this point. They had wandered so far from him that they were enjoying their perversions. They would not turn back to the Lord. And so because of that, verse 8, therefore, wait for me, declares the Lord. For the day when I rise up as a witness, indeed, my decision is to gather nations, to assemble kingdoms, to pour out on them my indignation, all my burning anger. For all the Lord, for all the earth will be devoured by the fire of my zeal. Continually see this image of fire. And it is the fire of God's passion, his absolute uh, consuming desire as the author of Hebrews would tell us our God is a consuming fire, it is a consuming desire for what is his, rightfully. And he says, you don't want me? You won't seek me? You won't do what I say? You won't repent? You won't hear my voice? No concern? Wait. Just wait. Now this is a command to the wicked as it is to the righteous. This is a command to the people who are not hearing God during the reformation of Josiah and the people who have repented and reform their lives by God's grace. Of course, for the wicked, they will soon discover everything God is saying is true. They must wait. You know, when Revelation 1-7 is fulfilled, when every eye sees the Lord, the King of kings and Lord of lords, appear in the sky, and the scriptures tell us every eye will see him, that will be the most fearful sight for everyone who does not know the Savior. Because at that moment, they will no longer be waiting. At that moment, they will know that what the scriptures teach was true all along, but it will be too late. And there will be nothing more terrifying than that for the wicked, for those who do not believe, for even people within the very congregation of God, like those here in Jerusalem, who simply were not genuinely Israel. As Paul said, not all Israel is really Israel. Well, he says, wait for me. 
That same coming in the sky that we wait for to those who know the Lord Jesus is the most glorious, precious, awesome of sights to those who know him. And the command to wait here, by the way, is not a command to passivity. This is a command to active faith. I think we could say that this is much like what Paul has in mind years later in 1 Corinthians 15, 58. He says, be steadfast, be immovable, be always abounding in the work of the Lord. How? Why? How can we do that? It's hard. We got trouble. We got persecutions. Know this. Just know this. Your labor is not in vain. Your labor is not in vain in the Lord. You wait for God. And you work while you wait. And if you really are waiting in faith, trusting the Lord, you will work. Because that's what faith does. So we are to seek the Lord, Zephaniah says. We are to wait for the Lord. But the final imperative to follow in preparing for the day of God's anger is to sing to the Lord. To sing to the Lord. Of all things, uh, This is chapter 3, verses 9 through 20. This is the last, the final, third and final section of Zephaniah's message. And this really is centered around these imperatives in verse 14. Shout for joy, O daughter of Zion. Shout in triumph, O Israel. Rejoice and exult with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. Shout, sing, depending on your translation. Those are both legitimate uh, translations, glosses for this word here. In fact, the word for shout here was often used for a shout at the outset of a battle where you were going into battle with confidence and you were going to get the victory or you were going to die for it. And he says, shout, shout like that. Give the shout of triumph. Sing to the Lord. And he says, shout for joy, O daughter of Zion. Shout and triumph. How do we shout? This is it coming from our confidence of what he's about to say. This is the kind of thing that needs to fill every single church of God-fearing people. And I appreciated the singing, by the way. I think that was a wonderful time. It was wonderful uh, to, to join with you and lift our voices in praise to God. But this is a genuine, sincere kind of a worship. Nothing is put on here. This isn't religion of the lips. It is coming from the heart. It is coming from sincere joy. And I want to share with you three themes just out of this final section in verses 9 through 20 of chapter 3 that Zephaniah uses to encourage us to shout for joy. The first of these themes here is that God will surely preserve a remnant. He's going to preserve a remnant. We've seen there's going to be a judgment. We've seen he's going to consume all the inhabitants of the earth. But here's the truth. He will preserve his people. He will, in the midst of all that, preserve to himself a people all over the earth. Verse 9, he says, For then I will give to the peoples purified lips. By the way, the peoples were often used for Gentiles. The peoples, that all of them may call in the name of the Lord to serve him shoulder to shoulder. From beyond the rivers of Ethiopia, my worshipers, my dispersed ones, will bring my offerings. From beyond the rivers of Ethiopia. So be into Africa, into places where the gospel had not gone. He's saying, I'm going to bring for me worshipers. I'm going to gather me people, a remnant 
from around the world. Now we could continue to look at that. He talks about the remnant of Israel, verse 13, verse 20. He mentions that indeed he will give renown and praise among all the peoples of the earth. God's remnant is going to include all peoples of the earth. Well, that's good news. Not just the Jews, but Gentiles as well. And this remnant will be hidden. Notice verse 12, he says, but I will leave you, but, but I will leave among you a humble and lowly people, and they will take refuge in the name of the Lord. How is God going to pre- preserve a people in the midst of this judgment? You know how he's going to preserve them? They're going to take refuge in the name of the Lord. For whosoever will call on the name of the Lord will be rescued, delivered. That is glorious truth, that we will be delivered in God. You know, there's a lot of truth here in Zephaniah that you'll find is very parallel to Romans chapter 8. I didn't have time to uh, divest all that, but Romans chapter 8, we could say, I, I am almost inclined to think, just studying Zephaniah, that Paul had some of these truths in mind when he wrote Romans chapter 8. And that chapter begins this way. There's no condemnation to those that are in Christ Jesus. They will be safe from judgment, from the wrath of God that is to come, because they're in Christ. And God has already judged his son in our place. So to be part of God's remnant, we need to seek the Lord. We must, of course, seek him on his terms, in his right by his righteousness with humility. And uh, and God will preserve a remnant. I didn't mention this too, but out of these, the latter portion of this text, he also mentions that he will be preserving people that are lame, those who are the outcasts. That is just to say God has chosen the weak and the foolish things. There's, there's so much glorious truth to praise God. Here's why you should sing to the Lord. Here's why you should shout to God if you're one of his remnant, because God's going to preserve you. He's going to preserve you in his son. There's no condemnation to you in Christ. That is worth singing about. A second theme worth singing to the Lord for is God will purify his people. God will purify his people. That's another theme through the final portion of Zephaniah's message here. And if you look here at verse 9, again, he says, For then I will give to the people's purified lips. Why? Because you'll remember he begins his book by uh, by calling them to repent for their perverted worship. They had perverted the worship of God. And he says, I'm going to remedy all that. I'm going to purify it. By doing what religion can't do for you, I'm going to purify that inside out, the heart. Look at verse 13. He says that the remnant of Israel will do no wrong and tell no lies, nor will a deceitful tongue be found in their mouths, for they will feed and lie down with no one to make them tremble. God is going to purify his people. Boy, that is worth shouting about. That's worth getting excited about this evening. And he says, verse 15, after saying, shout for joy, shout in triumph, rejoice, exult with all your heart. He says, the Lord has taken away his judgments. He's taken away his judgments against you. Now, God has a lot of judgments that he's laying against the wicked in this book. But he's saying to his people, I'm taking them away from you. How can God do that? On what basis can he do that and be just? Well, Zephaniah didn't understand how it all would have worked out from his limited perspective and redemptive history. But we have no excuse, brothers. We have no excuse because the story's been told. 
that God judged his son in our place. And the Lord took him who knew no sin and made him to be sin for us that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. God judged Jesus in your place. If you believe on Jesus Christ, if you come to him, the only way that you can be redeemed and God be just is that Jesus Christ suffered the wrath of God completely for you. There's nothing left for you to pay. He's finished it. He fully absorbed, drank to the dregs the wrath of God for your sake so that the judgment of God could be taken away. So that Paul could say that God has canceled our debts and the decrees against us by nailing them to the cross. That's Colossians 2.14. Praise God. God has removed our judgments by judging his son. And when we realize that, that God did not, that God did not shield Christ. The father didn't shield the son but fully laid on him the judgment you deserve. When you recognize that, if you believe that, you will shout for joy. You will shout in triumph. You will rejoice even in the face of this great cataclysmic coming judgment that God will bring on this world because God's people will be preserved. They will be purified. And a third thing and reason that we should then sing for joy according to Zephaniah in this sermon is that God himself will dwell in our midst. He will dwell with his people forever. That's how the Bible concludes. Revelation 22, that's the end of the story from our perspective here. And therefore, we have nothing to fear. Verse 15 He says, the Lord's uh, taken his judgments away. He's cleared away your enemies. The king of Israel, the Lord, is in your midst. You will fear disaster no more. In that day, verse 16, it will be said to Jerusalem, do not be afraid, O Zion. Do not let your hands fall limp. The Lord your God is in your midst, a victorious warrior. He will exult over you with joy. I'm going to stop right there. Actually, the word warrior is a really neat word in the Hebrew. It's the Hebrew word gabor. And it's used throughout the Old Testament to describe one who is a hero, a hero-like figure, one who's a mighty champion, one who overcomes all the odds. And guess what? That warrior fights on behalf of his people. He will defend his people. Romans chapter 8, Paul would say, if God is for us, who can be against us? What more do I have to fear? The Lord is with us. He is our victorious warrior and he is in our midst. Well, it gets even better because verse 17 continues. He, that is God, will exult over you with joy. He will be quiet in his love. He will rejoice over you with shouts of joy. Do you see it? God isn't simply promising to dwell with his people, to fight their battles, to protect them, but he loves them. He has set his love on them, an inexhaustible love, a boundless joy in so much that God isn't doing what he regrets. God is doing what he loves. God is delighting in his people, and he will do so forever. He says, you sing, you shout, because the Lord will sing. The Lord will shout. And we are simply going to join him with that mighty throng, singing forever, oh Lord, you are worthy worthy who has redeemed us to God, a people for yourself, so unworthy as we are. But that is the reason that Zephaniah can conclude a message that he begins, frankly, very gloomy. It's a doomsday message. 
And, and it's in a very minor key, but he can end it in a major tonality. He can end it in joy. He can end it with excitement. Because he says, if you know him, the Lord is going to preserve a remnant. He's going to purify his people and he's going to dwell with them forever. That's good news. Now, the doomsday you must be prepared for. This is the whole point of this is the whole point of Zephaniah's message. The doomsday you must be prepared for is the day of the Lord's anger. Forget about the zombie apocalypse and, and pandemics, you know, as bad as they are, they're not the end of the world, not literally. The judgment that we must fear is what Jesus talked about. He said, don't fear him who is able to kill the body, but fear him, capital H, who is able to kill, that is destroy both body and soul in hell. And people in our earth are fearing all the wrong things. Zephaniah said, yes, there is a doomsday coming. It's scarier than what this world knows. And the only way to be ready for it is to seek our God on his terms, to repent of our sinning and come to the Lord in humility, seeking his righteousness. Praise God, there's no mystery as to what that means. It is available in Jesus Christ. It is there and offered to all who believe. And those that come to me, Jesus said, I will certainly not cast out. Well, then we are to wait on the Lord. I, I, I've come to the Lord. I've sought him. What do I do? Wait on the Lord. Work for him, but wait for his coming. Don't be found slacking off when he comes. Now is the time to work and sing to the Lord finally. This isn't, this isn't some just a duty. This is our delight. We have a joy. We have, a, we have all eternity to look forward to with our God. And so I praise the Lord that this doomsday message, if you know the Lord, actually ends very exciting. It's one of the happiest things that you can, well, it is the happiest thing that you can know. Praise the Lord. Let me pray. Father, we thank you for your holy word. We thank you for this book that is largely neglected, even by many of your people, but yet we see tonight again the relevance, the, the power of your word how it speaks to our very situation here in the 21st century. And Lord, truly, we need it. Truly, as that day approaches, the day when you will give the ultimate judgment and you will right all wrongs, oh Lord, we need to be ready. And I pray, if there's somebody in this room that doesn't know the Lord Jesus Christ, not in a genuine way, they've never repented of their sins, they've never seen their need for the righteousness of Christ, I pray that you would use your truth even tonight to convict them and to draw them to yourself, just as you promised your Holy Spirit would do. Father, for those of your people, your remnant here, those who are already a part of your remnants, Lord, Lord, fill us with trust, fill us with hope, Lord. At times get discouraging and, and we get our eyes on politics and, and uh, fears all around us physical, spiritual, whatever. And Lord, we often don't trust you because of what we see and feel. And I pray tonight you would fill your people with faith. Give us the boldness and the courage and the joy that was so radiant from our lives that the world will become thirsty for our God and for a relationship with him. Lord, this we ask. It is our desire in the name of Jesus. Amen.